You are magnificent. You are glorious. Lord, let us exalt your name in this house today. Let us lift up the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name that at his name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Lord, we will all bow, and we bow now in our hearts and confess boldly and, and say unashamedly, Jesus, you are Lord. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Father, now, Father God, now as we transition into your word, open our hearts, fillet our hearts. Let the word go deep. Let it penetrate our souls and transform us and change us. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. And um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses up on the screen for you this morning. Question for you this morning. Do you love the Lord? Amen. Is there anything more important in this life than Jesus? I want to share with you this morning. This is a verse I posted on Facebook yesterday because I was meditating on it all week long. And it, it just meant so much to me. And I want to share it this morning. Psalms 32, 7 says, the psalmist says, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your hiding place? That was my heart cry all week in my times of spending time in the Word, in my prayer time. I was like, Lord Jesus, you are my hiding place. You are my strength in the storm. You're the one I run to when the times are good, when the times are bad. Lord, I want to be in your hiding place. And I want to be surrounded by songs of deliverance. And that's what we are this morning as we've gathered in the sanctuary to worship. We're surrounded. We're, we're, we're finding ourselves, placing ourselves under his lordship into his hiding place. And we're surrounding ourselves with songs of deliverance. What an amazing passage. And you preserve me from trouble. You know, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. But let Jesus Christ be your hiding place. And let that passage, Psalms 32, verse 7, touch your heart like it did mine. Amazing passage. So please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, I'm only going to teach on five verses this morning because that was as far as I could get in my studies with um, pulling everything out of it that I could find so that we could dive into it and let it enrich our lives. But let's take a look at it. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning. The Word of God says, To sum up all, to sum, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. In verse 12, the final verse, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. And Lord, as we break down these uh, 
these five verses, just pray, God, that you um, open our hearts and fill it with the truth of your word. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen, amen. The title of my message this morning is Living the Good Life. Living the Good Life. That's what we're called to. We're called to live the good life. And you live a good life when you serve Jesus Christ. When you become a born-again believer, you are living the good life. There's no better life than serving Christ in this very short existence that we have here on earth. In 2014, me and my family had the opportunity to go down to Costa Rica and help missionaries Daniel and Sarah Barrett. With, for seven days, we got to help them do ministry down in Costa Rica. It was an amazing seven days. And one of the greatest blessings of us going on that trip is we got to meet this young man by the name of Christian Ka, who would become our worship, one of our worship leaders here at Calvary Chapel Irmo. But we first met Christian in Costa Rica in 2014. They're doing their vacation Bible school. And then when I was down in Costa Rica, he said, hey, by the way, I'm starting CIU next year. I said, well, we're going to hook up. And so that's what led to me and Christian's friendship and Christian joining us in 2015 at Lake Murray Gymnastics. And we're very thankful for this friendship that we have and uh, his soon marriage, soon uh, marriage he'll be having with Laura there. So we're really looking forward to that. But anyway, that was an awesome seven days of ministry in Costa Rica. In in Costa Rica, there's a familiar phrase that everyone knows. It's called Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Anybody ever heard that phrase by a show of hand? Okay, we've had a couple of people, Pura Vida. It means the simple life. It means the pure life. It means the good life. It's more, than just, it's more than just a saying in Costa Rica. It's a way of life. Costa Ricans uh, use this phrase to say hello, goodbye, and it's an expression meant to say all is well or everything is good in life. So you see down there in Costa Rica, no stress, no worries, no fuss. It's Pura Vida. It's the good life. You see, in every culture throughout the world, in everywhere, all around the world, uh, the culture has their way of expressing what the good life is. We all have a definition. But the, the important question we ask ourselves this morning, with the title of my message being Living the Good Life, is how does a Christian define the good life? How does a Christian define the good life? The world defines the good life by big houses, lots of money, and fame. According to scripture, those things have nothing to do with the good life. As a matter of fact, those things can be a distraction. But, uh, but look at, at 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10. He says there, For the one who desires life to love and see, there it is, good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You see, the good life is living a holy, dedicated life for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and and letting our light shine. That is the biblical definition of the good life, is living for Christ, being in complete surrender to him. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, here it is, what is good. This is what is good in life. And, and, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The Christian can live the good life, but as we're going to see in the text this morning, it starts with the attitude of our heart. 
So when the attitude of our heart is in the right place before the, before the Lord, there's no better life to live. There's no better definition of the good life of serving Christ. So let's look at this. Uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning in verse 8, and then, but we will teach on each verse. But let, let's break down verse 8 because there's a lot to unpack here. In verse 8, he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. So the first characteristic of the good life is that we be harmonious. The Greek word here is homophrones. It means to be of one mind, to be like-minded, to not be divided, but to be united. For us not to be in conflict with one another in our family, in our church, in our body, but to work together. And friends, we work together in unity, in love, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what brings us together. That's what brings us here together this morning in worship, is we are believers in Jesus, submitted to the authority of Scripture. And that's where we unite. It does not mean that we agree on every single little minute detail. Some of us here in this room are more Calvinist than the others, or more Arminian than others. Some of us have different varying views of eschatology, some of us may even be more charismatic than the others. But the, main, but the one thing we do is we maintain our, we show grace in those areas where we, where, we, where, we, where we differ. But we maintain a common commitment to the truth of Jesus Christ and God's word. This is what it means, friend, to be harmonious. To be in unity and to be together. When we are together, we can make great change in our culture and in our world, but when we are not when we are not together and we are divided, we're, we're pretty much useless. So the body of Christ has to unite under the authority of Scripture and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Harmonious means also within the context of the local church serving in the body. Harmonious means that you're a team player. It means that you're a team player. You're not difficult to serve with. You're not disruptive. You submit to your leaders. You, you, you bring a passion and you bring a zeal that the leaders say, man, I want you on the team. That's what it means to be harmonious. Is, is, is you, you bring to the table a passion, a zeal, a submission to leadership to edify and build up the body of Christ. Imagine a symphony orchestra. A symphony orchestra playing. And when they are all together and they are all in harmony, it is the most magnificent sound you will ever hear. But if one instrument is out of sync and not in line with everyone else, it ruins the whole entire thing. And we as the body of Christ have got to be harmonious like a symphony orchestra under the authority of Scripture, submitted to God's Word, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we will do great things in this life for the Lord when we are harmonious. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He sums this up, everything I just said. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you, Here it is, that you stand fast in one spirit. And then he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, if you're taking notes, one mind, one spirit, one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. 
This is being harmonious. This is the good life. It doesn't get any better, man. When, when a church is in unity, people want to be there. People want to come. But when, when people are divided and, and there's axes to grind, it's the last place you want to be. Let's be a body that's united here locally in our church, but also in the bigger church. You know, as long as they're submitted to the authority of Scripture and they're following sound biblical teaching and, and, and under the lordship of Jesus Christ, let's be united in being harmonious. The second word there in that verse is, uh, he says, to sum up all things, let, let all of you be harmonious and be sympathetic. The Greek word for sympathetic there is sympathos. It means to sympathize with the pain of others. As Christians, we sympathize with the pain that the world is going through because of the fall. We sympathize. In other words, we feel their pain. We see their pain. And when we see their pain and we feel their pain, it breaks our heart. It breaks our heart and we want to help. And that's one of the beautiful things about Christianity I love. Is you see Christians not being judgmental in a sinful situation. But coming in and saying, hey, can I come in and help you? I'm not going to judge you. But I'm going to point you to the Savior. I'm going to help you. Un- 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 we we want to help people. Because we sympathize with their pain. Unfortunately, some believers like to stand in judgment. They look down the barrel of their nose. They're a modern day Pharisee. And what is it that they possess? No sympathy. We got to be sympathetic. We got to be sympathetic. You know, we have to have heart. We have to have emotion. We have to say, hey, we're not condoning your sin or approving of your sin, but we're coming alongside to help you get out of your sin in a sympathetic spirit. You know, when we're not sympathetic, we're not following in the footsteps of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, talking about our Savior when he was walking the, the, the roads of, of Israel, he says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. Christ showed compassion. Christ was sympathetic, and you and I are called to do the same thing. Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 12 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize excuse me, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Christ understands the pain that the world, he's omniscient, he knows everything. He knows more about it than we do, and he is sympathetic, and we need to do the same. Here it is, guys, my final thought on being sympathetic, sympathizing with the pain of the world, is a a sympathetic spirit within you will take you a lot farther in reaching someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ than a pharisaical, judgmental spirit. Lord, pray that you give us a sympathetic spirit towards the world so that we can help them come out of their darkness. The third word there in verse 8, brotherly, brotherly. This is one word in the Greek, philadelphos, which we get the word philadelphia. Uh, some of your translations, depending on what translation you have, it may say brotherly love or, or love one another. But basically what that means down, comes down to is this. We treat each other like family. We treat each other like family. We have those tough, hard conversations 
when needed, but we also have those conversations of love and grace. We, we treat each other like family. We are unselfish to others. It's okay to show affections, but we love. What do we, what do we, how do we love people? We love people with the love of God, the love that he has poured into your heart when you got saved, that love that he displayed to you that you had a revelation of when you understood the cross. And he, and he demonst- Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we understand the gospel, and that was God's love towards us, and we, did, we, we, were, we, were, rebel- we were rebels, you know, we, we weren't in a place, but he demonstrated that love towards us, so let's you and I take that love. Now, it's not the same word. God's love is the agape love. The love here is talking about the, the phile love, and this phile love is, is brotherly love. But that brotherly love comes from God's agape love that, that was demonstrated to us that we demonstrate to the body, but also to those outside of the church. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples, he says, a new command I give you. Y'all know the verse, y'all know the phrase, love one another. It's, 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 it's a, a new command. In other words, it's not optional. It's, it's something he is telling us to do. And it shouldn't be hard to do because we've experienced his love. We share that love. He continues in John 13. He says, um, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of our witnesses as Christians, as the body of Christ, is the world sees us loving on each other. People from all, walk, all walks of life, different backgrounds, d- different ways of life, we all come together and we instantly, within the body of Christ, we love each other. The world is longing for that. They are longing for people that will love them in the name of Christ. So the third thing there is we are to be brotherly. We're family, man. George is my brother. Bud's my brother. You ladies, you're my sisters in Christ, and we love and we care for each other in all situations. We, we love one another. One, two, three. The fourth word there is kind-hearted. It's kind-hearted. Uh, the word kind-hearted means uh, to be compassionate, to be compassionate, to have a soft heart, to have a tender heart, and that's part of the Christian walk is that we're compassionate and we're tender-hearted. And also, you could, uh, this phrase uh, could mean be nice. Be nice. Be kind. Think about that word, kind-hearted. Be kind. Be easy to get along with. Don't be a jerk. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, be kind. It summarizes this word that Peter uses, kind-hearted. Paul summarizes this word in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where he says, be kind. (laughs) Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Man, what would the church be like if we lived that out? That would be amazing. That would be amazing if we were kind. Which I, I say if. I think we are. But I'm talking about the big body of Christ. The, the, the church or everywhere would be kind, would be compassionate, would, would uh, love one another, would forgive one another. That means when my brother does me wrong, we talk about it, we get things right, but then we don't hang it over each other's heads, but we forgive. 
And we, and we do this all as a result, according to Ephesians 4.32, we do it all as a result of what Christ has done in our life. Family, this is the nuts and bolts of Christianity. This is where it comes down to. This, this is the visible, this is the visible manifestation of Christ in the world. Our actions, our deeds, the way we live our life, being sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, living it out in this world, that is how they see Christ. Let's represent him well. And in doing so, you're living the good life because there's no better way to live. The final uh, phrase that Peter uses in this verse is, uh, he says, and humble in spirit, humble in spirit. This is one word in the Greek, tapaphrones. It means to be meek. To me, when I was studying these virtues, to me, this one's almost the most important. This is probably the, almost, the, the, the most important Christian virtue. All these are important, but humble in spirit is very, very important. And what does being humble in spirit mean? It means having a humble opinion of yourself. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. It's a, it's a deep sense of realizing how little you really are compared to how big God is. That's what it means to be humble. That, that you're not exalted, that you understand God is exalted, and that you are a humble person in need of grace, that you're a humble person in need of him. And that humility and that humble spirit produces a change in our lives, in everyday life, in everyday life. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in, here it is, in humility, value others more than yourself. You see, this, this humble spirit, it produces a manifestation, a visible manifestation in your life of Christ at work. And that manifestation is this, that you consider others more important than yourself. He continues in verse 4 of Philippians chapter 2, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interest of others. In your relation, uh, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. See, living the good life is, is studying the life of Christ, following the life of Christ, and imitating the life of Christ. Not that we're deity, because we're not. He's deity. We're humans. But he, we follow in his footsteps. You know, they're all saying, what would Jesus do? We, we follow in his footsteps. We see how Christ interacted with the world. We interact with the world the same way. We see how Christ interacted with the church. We interact with each other the same way. We're, just, we're not reinventing the will. We're just following his example. This is living the good life. This is living the good life. It's doing his will and following in the footsteps of our Savior. Now let's, can, let's move on to the next verse. We'll go, we'll go a little bit quicker here. Verses nine, let's read, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. And here's, here, here's where I got the, um, the title of my message, verse 10. For the one who desires life 
to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, what's he saying here in verses 9 and 10? Verse 9, he is addressing the Christian's response when the Christian is done wrong. He, he says, he, what does he say there? He says, uh, not returning evil for evil. That's evil actions that are done against us. Or, in verse 9, it says, insult for insert, insult for insult. That's words that are spoken against us. Our response, this is talking about our response to being done wrong. And when we are done wrong, family, hear me clearly, we are not, I repeat, we are not to retaliate. Even though our flesh wants to, our mind wants to, and we have every reason in the book by human standards to retaliate, the scripture tells you and I to not retaliate. Man, that's where we just got to fight it, buckle down, and say, Lord, help me to do the right thing and not to retaliate. Christians do not retaliate. Christians do not take revenge. We do not take revenge. We, 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 we reserve judgment for God. Lord, you'll take care of this. You're looking down from heaven. You see the situation. You will take care of it. I didn't create a slide for it, but make a note of this. Go back and look at it in, in your study time. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. The apostle says, I'm going to read this slowly. He says, when we are cursed, talking about you and I, when the Christians are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, when, when somebody gives us a tongue lashing or, 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 or words are spoken against us, we answer kindly. This ain't easy. This ain't easy. This is taking it to the next level in your walk with Christ, okay? You're, you're graduating. You're, you're, you're going up the, up the ladder in your growth. He says, and then uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, he says, we have become, talking about Christians, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Why does he say we have become the scum of this earth, the garbage of this world? Because we don't act like the world. We don't respond the way the world responds. We, we don't do that. We, if, if you take revenge, you, you, we're, you're acting like the world. And, and the times where we have taken revenge, we need to confess it as sin and say, Lord, please forgive me. And, th and that begs the question, that begs the question, when you are cursed, when you are persecuted, uh, when you slander, uh, when these things happen, how do I respond, Pastor? What do, I, what do I do when these things happen to me? I'll give you five things you do. Five ways you respond to when evil is done against you or words are spoken against you. First off, you bless them. You say thank you. Thank you so much for speaking so mean of me. Thank you because what you're doing is you're developing character in my life. But we bless that person. We bless that person. We don't return curse. And we, and we say thank you. We, we say thank you. Secondly, we love them. We love them. Our flesh wants to hate. Our flesh wants to have mean and evil thoughts in our heads and our hearts. But we, we have got to take our Christianity to the next level. And we're going to say, you know what? 
I love you. God bless you. I'm praying for you. I was once like that too. I've even responded just like you. But we got to love them. We got to bless them. We got to thank them. We got to love them. Number three, we got to speak well of them and seek their well being. We got to speak well of those who do evil in words spoken against us in persecution. You know, we got to speak well of them and seek their well being. You know, I was reading this week, I almost wanted to share this illustration uh, when my opening of my sermon. That's like, no. I'm, I'm going to share it next week, but I'm going to go ahead and share it now. At Grace Community Church, um, back in the 80s, one of John MacArthur's associate pastors um, who was serving there at the church, um, his son-in-law was working in the local market in Los Angeles, okay? And one Saturday afternoon, a gunman went into the market high on drugs and, and killed his son-in-law killed a son-in-law. It devastated the church. I was reading about it this week. It devastated the church. It hurt them greatly. The, the, the husband and, and the, the wife and the associate pastor and the other family, it devastated them. It devastated them that this, their son-in-law was killed for no reason by this drug addict who was robbing the local food market. And in the weeks and the months to come, the, uh, the associate pastor, the, 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 step, the stepfather of the individual that was killed, he had one passion, and he kept sharing this with Pastor John. He kept saying, I got one mission in this life, and that is to get into prison and share the gospel with this murderer. And I was like, wow. Wow, and he succeeded. That is doing what we're talking about this morning. When people are, are, when we're done wrong and evil actions are committed, that we bless them, we love them, we speak well of them. Uh, number four, we pray for them. We pray for our, our enemies. Um, we fervently call out their name and say, Lord, please change their heart. Please change my heart. Help us come together. But we got to fervently pray for when we're done wrong. And ultimately, you got to forgive them. You, you got you to come to a place where you can forgive them of what they've done wrong. That's the Christian response when evil is done against you, when insults are spoken against you. That we bless them, love them, speak well, pray for them. We forgive them. And he says there in verse 10, For the one who desires life to live and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You know, we got to keep a control on the words that come out of our mouth. So many times in my, in my life, I mean, I'll, I'll stand at the front of the line, of the guilty line. So many times in my life, I have said words that I was like, ooh, I wish I could bring them back. I wish I could just rewind them back in, bring them back in, and act like they were never said. But once, we, we got to understand that our words can hurt. Our, our, our words um, can, can speak evil, can speak deceit. And as Christians, we have to control our tongues and use our tongues to bless, love, pray for, and forgive. That's the good life. That's the good life. Continuing on in verse 11. Verse 11 says, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Again, the good life is we see the evil in the world 
and we run from it. We, we, we run from it, and we have no part of it. We don't approve of it. We don't participate in it. We have nothing to do with the evil. Matter of fact, we combat the evil. And it says, it says we do good. It says you do good. You know, we live the good life when you, you live the good life. I live the good life when we recognize our sin and we turn from evil and we repent and we turn to the Lord wholeheartedly. That is the good life. That is the absolute best life. The good life is being born again. The good life is surrendering your life daily and saying, Holy Spirit, transform me, mold me, make me into the person that you, that you are developing me into being. You know, it's a daily surrender. That is the good life. That is the good life. He says he must seek peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers and pursue it. That phrase, pursue it, you know, sometimes peace doesn't come automatically. So we have to make it a, a diligent effort to pursue peace. You know, to, to pursue peace with, with those that we are at odds with. The, this is living the good life. This is more than belief. This is living out our Christian values. He continues in, in our final verse this morning, verse 12. It says, for the eyes of the Lord... I love this. Now, when you, when you read this verse, look at the, the descriptive words that talk about the head, the face. He uses three words in this verse. Verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. The first thing it says, the eyes. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His, what's that old song? His eyes are on the sparrow. He sees everything. God sees exactly where you're at in life, okay? What it, maybe, a, maybe some pain you're going through, some difficulties. It might be a struggle. It might be you're fighting against sin. He sees your battle, okay? He sees. And then it says his ears attend to their prayers. God's ear is bent over waiting for you to call upon his name. That's our God, and that is living the good life when we understand that his eyes are on the sparrow, his eyes are on you, and his ear is bent, waiting for his son or daughter to call upon his name and to delight themselves in him and to make him, the Lord, their hiding place. God's eyes and his ears are towards his children. We need to understand that. He watches over us, he sees us, he hears us, and he cares for us. Talking about the believer, but look at the second half of the verse. He says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Right now, today, we are living in a rapidly changing culture and country. And we are not living in a godly country. We are not living in a godly land. And nobody loves America more than me. I love my country, but we have to be honest. When we look at the policies and we look at what's taking place in our land, we are living in a very wicked generation. A very wicked generation, this accepting of sin, this accepting of immorality. And the scripture says, look at it, 
You look at it in your Bible, verse 12, second half, verse 12. It says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His face is against, he's bent against the ungodly. He, he's bent against the ungodly. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When men suppress the truth, they reject the Bible, they are left to their own devices, and they're left to the wrath of God. And the clear teaching of Scripture for our day and our generation is if they do not repent, judgment will come if it hasn't already. That's why you and I need to be fervently praying for our country and being a Christian that makes an impact in our culture at every level. At every level possible, being a witness, sharing the gospel, starting conversations with your unsaved friends, talking to them about Jesus. You know, because here's the deal. Here's the deal when it comes to ungodliness. You don't focus on the actions, okay? You don't, you don't focus on the actions and the works and the deeds of what the people are doing that is ungodly. What you focus on is the heart. If you change the heart, the actions on the outside will change. That's why the, 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 the answer for the ungodliness is not to stop doing this and stop doing this and start doing this and start doing this. No, the answer to the problem is repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Christ. And when you become a born-again Christian, you will live differently. And it will affect, it will, it will change the culture. It will change those around us. We're not, we're not moralists, you know. We're, we're not here trying to tell everyone. Uh, our, the Christian mission, that is, is, is not to preach moralism. You know, do this and do that, do this and do this, live this way and live that way. No, the, the, the message of the Christian is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel gets into the heart and they become born again, all that stuff on the outside will automatically take care of itself. So that's what we pray for. That's what, we, that's what our focus is. That is the good life. The good life is understanding that God hears us. Uh, it says there in verse 12 of your Bible, he, he hears and tends to your prayers. His eyes are upon you. His face is against those who, who, who do wicked. And then finally, you know, living the good life. You know, I was wondering, uh, as I was writing out this title of this message, I was like, I wonder how that's going to come across on the email. Living the good life. Is he going to get up there and sound like Joel Osteen? <laughs> that was my thought. And I was like, and I, I wrote, living the good life. And then I backspace. Let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> but no, living the good life has nothing to do with your possessions. Living the good life has nothing to do with the size of your house. Or how much money is in your checkbook. Or your material possessions. That has nothing to do with living the good life. Living the good life is serving Christ. Living the good life is serving the Lord. And as I talked about, I think it was last week's message or the week before, living the good life is doing what is right. Living the good life is, is your heart and my heart being in the right place before the Lord. As... Um, 
as Psalms 32, verse 7 says, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with a song of deliverance. The psalmist is like, God, it's about being in your presence. It's about doing your will. It's about serving you. It's about loving you. It's about being surrounded with songs of deliverance. That is the good life. That is the beautiful life of the Christian. And also, keep in mind, what is, who is First Peter being written to? It's being written to Jews that have undergone intense persecution. And that's the, the big story of First Peter. And he's telling them, even in your persecution, you can live the good life. You can do what is right, despite, despite the persecution, despite all the hate that's coming your way. I want to close with this, the verse I opened up the service with, Micah 6.8. One of the verses I opened up with, talking about the good life. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. There it is. What is good. Family, this is good that you and I do what the Lord requires. And, and, and to do justice, in other words, to do the right thing, make the right decision, make righteous decisions when it comes to your family, when it comes to your job, when it comes to your place of work. Do the right thing. Love kindness. That's cool how Peter here in the New Testament, some of his words are parallel with this ancient prophet from the Old Testament. To love kindness. Let's love being kind to one another. Let's help each other. And then he says to walk humbly, to walk in humility. Consider others. Understand how small you are. Understand how big God is. And, and let that be a motivation to serve other people and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. The good life begins, continues, and ends with serving Christ. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this morning's service. And Father, I pray, God, that you will, um, I pray that you've opened the hearts of your people. And Father, they see what the good life is. The good life is serving you. Father, help us not to measure our Christianity by what we have in this world. Instead, we measure the good life, our Christianity, by you being in our life. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we say there's no better place I would rather be than to be in your presence, walking with you humbly every day of my life. God, capture your people's hearts this morning. Capture their hearts. Give them a deep desire, Lord, for the good life, to get into your word and to serve you humbly with a sympathetic, harmonious, kind, humble heart. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Thank you for this Lord's Day, and thank you for worship. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.